0: Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to the Growing Band Director podcast. My name is Kyle Smith, and joining me is my friend and colleague, Jeff Smith. Our mission is to share practical advice and explore topics that will help every band director, no matter your experience level, as well as music education students who are working to join us in the coming years. Together, we will discuss many aspects of a well-rounded band program, but most importantly, we will discuss concepts that help us all improve our own programs each and every day. Always remember the famous quote by Ray Kroc, when you're green, you're growing, and when you're right, you rot. Let's get started. Welcome back, everybody, to the Growing Band Director podcast. I'm here with my friend Trent Austin. This is episode 79, uh, Trent of uh, Austin Custom Brass. And uh, dude, it's really nice to see you. We've been talking to Red Sox. Tell us more about the Red Sox. Where are we at these days? <laughs>
1: I can't do that. Everybody would turn off the podcast yeah. instantly. They they they'd be in a state of uh, of terror and and almost depression. I think maybe I don't know. So it's great to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me. So you're in
0: Kansas City, but you're a you're a Maine guy and a Boston guy. But Kansas uh, I'll always
1: Kansas City a mainer. Home. Yeah, a mainer be a mainer. A mainer. Yes, uh, <laughs> absolutely. I grew up there in Central Maine there, and my you know my family's from the coast, so. Now, you know, I very much miss the ocean and I miss seafood and I miss my Boston sports teams and all my musical uh, colleagues, but I've been living here in Kansas City for uh, five years now, which is kind of scary. And you got the barbecue, though. We have the barbecue. (coughs) We have the cough. No, we have, um, I'm not a Chiefs fan, but I guess we have a pretty good football team, but like, you know. Yeah. But we'll we move on. Haven't.
0: We'll, we'll move on from those. Yeah,
1: that's right. You can yeah. delete that in the podcast. <laughs> Boom. That is now deleted. So, uh, uh
0: yeah. So I want to hear the story about how you got to Kansas city. Let's not go back to the beginning. Let's start with you were in Boston. Uh, where was your shop in Boston again?
1: My shop in Boston was in Reading. So hmm. like a little bit North of the city, just cause I couldn't afford the rent of Boston itself. Yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were, we started the shop. Well, I'll back let me back go backwards I guess a little bit. Um I had bought and sold horns for my students. I taught college at USM, mm-hmm. uh University of Southern Maine. I think for about 9 years. And then I would always try to find horns for my students cuz often they would be, you know, it be really hard uh, challenge for them to find affordable instruments and then I would fix them up in my basement at my house, clean them up, you know, align the valves and then uh, you know make a few bucks and get the student a really good horn. My earphones are not staying in my ear. Uh, so this is the earphones. <laughs> you were, you were not stay. given a perfectly shaped ear. Oh so. man I've got I got so many issues today. So <laughs> this is the this is the part pro- problem with the podcast. So so I was always doing that. I was guy, uh, buying horns, flipping them. Uh, and in the process, I learned a lot about instruments. Uh, and my students got really good instruments for a fair price.
0: Yep.
1: Um, I became a performing artist for this company, Adams, which is based in the Netherlands. Hopefully, a lot of you band directors have Adams percussion. And hopefully, more of you will get Adams brass because it's fantastic. Um, and I worked a Midwest band uh, clinic for them, mm-hmm. just work in the booth, sold a bunch of horns for them. They're like, wow, you're really good at that. You should open a shop. And I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we'll give you exclusive on our brass line for the United States for three years. And I said, okay, I'll open, my, open the shop. <laughs> so they sort of pushed me, first me, into uh, the business. And now... It's kind of crazy. So.
0: so tell us about the business for people who are like normal band directors and they only deal with, you know, music and arts and whatever other sort of retailer. Like, right. what, do you, what do you guys do?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, music and arts is great. Um, you know, they they provide an amazing service to the bulk of the people that need musical gear, like you need guitar or whatever, you need a, you know, a student clarinet, you, need, you go there. We are a pro shop. Mm-hmm. Um, we deal with very custom uh, fittings for players. People, we had a, someone actually this morning that uh, flew in from Memphis to buy a trumpet. So they flew in, they stayed overnight. They came to our shop this morning Um, and they left with, a uh, actually a new Adams actually. And we have other people testing. I'm not sure you can hear them, but, um, we have other people testing here in the shop right now. So versus like a traditional, um, let's say a music and arts where they might have 10 trumpets in Mm -hmm. their store, like a beginner or an intermediate, and then like a couple professional models. We have four or 500 in the shop right now. All levels from mm-hmm. the from the basic basic two hundred dollar horn to we just sold a horn last week for seventeen thousand dollars a trumpet. Well, so um, yeah.
0: what? Do you do any work with schools? Are there any schools who
1: we do? Yeah. Um, we do school bids. We do government bids. We do uh, purchase orders and all of the the things. Um, the only difference between us and a traditional, like a road rep music store, like a music and arts, uh, is that we we're not like a built-in sales funnel that like a lot of those music stores are, and, and it and it's and it's just. It's, I, it makes sense, you know, like you get your rental from that company, and then when it's time to upgrade, you're going to go to that company because you know that company. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to work a lot harder for our business, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to continually put our product out online and hustle. I mean, it's just like, I mean, band directors are the epitome of hustle, that's like the the. I mean, that's like all you all do is like, see, that's, I'm now saying y'all, I mean, I don't know, man, I'm eating barbecue and saying y'all, this is, this is wrong. Um, yeah, but it's right. Barbecue is always yeah. right. Um, yeah. but, uh, so we have to, we have to work harder on, you know, gaining transactions and, uh, establishing trust and, you know, st- Security in, you know, our customer base. Mm-hmm. I, I think, um, but once we get them, I think we then get deeply passionate, uh, lifelong supporters of of our business. That's so.
0: great. That's great. Thanks, man. W- well, you were in Maine. What was it uh, last year? Right when we did.
1: We did. We did. Covid. Yes, uh, in-
0: Covid. Jazz festival. Yes.
1: Yeah. That's right. I directed the, the thanks. To you, I directed the 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 Allstate Jazz Ensemble, which I was a student in back in Hong yeah. <laughs> Kong, um, and uh, that yeah. was a blast, man. Even with the COVID protocols, and it was great because we were doing it and it hadn't been done in so long, and and it was great for people being safe because um, I've had COVID at least two times, I know right now, probably three to three or four times. Um, <clears throat> yay. Um, but um, yeah, and it was cold. I remember. Remember, it was yeah. like it was cold, cold, cold in Bangor. Ugh. it's so always it's cold from Maine because I said Bangor right. Bangor.
0: <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. So, and you grew up not too far from there. The first time I remember meeting you was at, okay. UN, was at UNH in April of '97 because that would have okay. been that would have been your senior year, right? Yep. Um, yeah. and, and I was a pers- prospective student. So I came in and sat in and Nick, Nick Orvich was doing the wind symphony at the time. Um, and awesome. I remember, I remember coming in and being like, you know, I was one of the best players in high school in Maine and, and all that. And then I remember coming in and you were one of the people who sold me on it. You didn't even know that, but, um, I, okay. I, I came and I sat last chair. Right. And I don't even remember what the heck piece you guys were playing, but of course it was like, yeah, I grab your horn and sit in. Of course, I was used to being able to play everything. And then, man, I played like one out of every four notes, right? But I remember hearing you playing principal. And again, I don't remember what it, what it was. but I, And I knew you were leaving, right? But I looked around Ooh. and I said, wow, I feel like the worst musician in this room. This is where I need to be. And yes. that, that's what really sold me on going to UNH is because there was quality players there. And I knew I wasn't just going to walk in and be the top person right. there.
1: Well, I'm gonna give you an addendum to your story because you weren't the worst musician in the room because I remember hearing you when you were playing you played Nutville yep. with the South Portland jazz band when Maynard was giving a, a master class. I think you guys opened for him, right? Yep, yep. And you killed it. I, did. I do remember I do remember you turned about the same shade as your hat. Uh, <laughs> and you were playing like a King Liberty or something some Silver Tone or something. Yep. Um that's this is a terrible disease. I don't remember people's names, but I remember what they were playing for <laughs> instruments. Um, yep. You know, it's like, "Oh yeah, man, you played blah blah blah." Um, yeah. but and you sounded great back then. And it's like, "So you got to give yourself more credit. I know what you're doing. You're being humble and you're being kind, but but the, but it is. It is one of these things where, you know, I had a similar experience when I went to UNH when I auditioned. Um, I remember sitting in with the jazz band and I was like, Oh, everybody can hear everybody in this band can read. And I could not read music. Um, I was taught like by (coughs) listening. I grew, um, for, I'll give you a little backstory for people. Um, I went to Nicoma's high school, um, Uh, an amazing uh, three-tiered teaching system there with um, Jack Clifford, who has passed away. He was my middle school band director. I mean, my uh, elementary school band director. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bruce Brown who's like my hero Mm because he played trumpet and he still does. And he was my middle school junior high band director. And then Stan Buchanan was the high school band director. And he was one of the traditional like old school main tyrant Sort of like, you know, curmudgeony mm-hmm. dudes um, who continuously nailed like you to play three songs because he was a bowling trophy guy. You yeah. know, like, and it, he had to be because that was the way he justified his program financially because um, it was a very depressed economic area mm-hmm. um it was better when i was there but then once a lot of the industries closed down and moved um there was not much income so um uh but anyways you know that was not really a, like a here we're going to sight read today you know we mm-hmm. didn't really sight read at all you know you got your music you played your music you worked on your music um so when i got to unh and i had to sight read it was like freaky mm-hmm. i mean that was so bad um but, uh, you know, thankful for the instructors at UNH were kind enough to like deal with me, uh, and, and cultivate that with me, force me to do it. So nowadays I'm, I'm a pretty decent sight reader now, but you know, like back in the day I couldn't read anything. So,
0: yeah. So, and when you got to UNH, obviously one of the best things about UNH is the the Clark Terry jazz festival. So absolutely. So let's let's talk about Clark a little bit. The, the connection, you know, what is what is the legacy? You know, Clark passed in February of 15, I believe. Um, yes. What, what is the legacy that Clark has left us?
1: Well, Clark, I mean, I will say just in a, in a trumpet world, Clark has the best actual Trumpet setup I've ever seen. So any student who struggles with the instrument, any people who are out there who are, who might have struggling brass students, sit them in front of a YouTube video of Clark playing and say, watch this and emulate how he plays because it is the most effortless, controlled um, setup. So that's okay. As a trumpet player, he's... You know, uh, unmatched. I mean, the highest, the best compliment I can ever give a musician is that I can tell them in a few notes. Yep. You know, and that could be that could be Renee Fleming, that could be Yo Yo Ma, that could be you know Eric Clapton. It could be, um, you know, it could be, well, Axl Rose. I mean, it doesn't necessarily matter where you're going, but you could tell Clark's playing. Regardless of the time period, even when he was young and still searching for his sound, um, you could tell tell his playing in twenty seconds, mm-hmm. ten seconds. Um, so, besides the the, the Titanic um, musicianship, um, Clark was an incredible educator. He he um, he had a great knack of making you feel comfortable, making you feel like you were part of his band and his ensemble. So it could be the saddest, weakest middle school jazz band you've ever heard in your life, Mm -hmm. and Clark would make them swing. That's like a huge ability that I see. Sometimes I see guest artists like Clark who – out there today who can't do that clark clark had that ability to do that and it's unbelievable and it's something that you know when i do those things i try to aspire to and i can't do but it's amazing how clark could do that um besides his, his amazing tireless work on the road i mean he told me one year uh in the 70s i think it was um he did 275 dates on the road
0: mm.
1: like school schools Like he was going school, 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 school. He created the Nicola's Jazz Program. He played a concert in 1980. And it changed everybody's perspective of like what this was. And everybody was excited in the whole, the entire level. From one night. That's the power of such a, such a incredible artist because um, he
0: was he, he was insistent that jazz is an oral language which of course it is so you know yes. he knew you had to be there and teach it one-on-one or one-on-ten or whatever it is in order so that that traveling
1: part is a huge a huge bit of that oh yeah and he i mean it's intense how much of a road rat he was mm-hmm. um so when i went to unh part of the reason i did get uh, accept my offer at unh was the fact that I, at the time when I was there in '93, he was still doing two weeks a semester, mm-hmm. two weeks, and so part of the cool thing at UNH that I got to do was sort of be like his valet, mm-hmm. where you know you would you would take him back and forth to the hotel every night you would have dinner with him and then what happened after that is like he he didn't want to be in his hotel room alone he didn't want to hang out alone he's like come and hang with me so i would bring my horn and i would sit in his room and sometimes he's on the phone he's talking and he's doing stuff sometimes he's like you know writing uh cards you know he used to send me postcards when i was young Hmm. like um you know like even um in high school he sent me some postcards i met him um Ninety-two before I went to UNH, but um, anyways, um, so sitting and in, was just
0: hang. So sitting and hanging. I remember so he would do masterclasses too with the trumpet section yeah. with, when you were yeah. there. I, I remember sitting and learning. Um, I don't want to be kissed by anyone but you, you know. Yeah. Um, and having him just teach it to us. Now that tune isn't the hardest tune ever, but it's not the easiest tune ever either. And I remember yeah. like, wait, we're not getting music to this, and Clark Terry's in front of us and we better get it. So I, I just remember that, you know, learning by ear over and over and over again. And, and yes. that's, I still know that tune to this day just because of, because of that experience.
1: Well, yeah, we don't, we don't remember how we learned how to talk. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you do, you have this unbelievably, you know, Benjamin Button sort of like experience. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, maybe going backwards in life. I don't know, but we don't remember how it was to learn how to talk. I think in a musical th- context in an improvisatory context, it's the same thing. You know um, there's a, You could buy every great book on jazz improvisation. I mean there's, the, there's tons of incredible texts. You know, one of my favorite texts out there for, especially for music educators, um, is Hal Crook's book "Ready, Aim, Improvise." It's a great book, hmm. um, and it's especially if you don't have a lot of skill in terms of like I've never conducted a jazz improv class, or I've never worked with a combo. Um, it's a wonderful text on formulating exercises and getting students ready to play, ready for the endeavor of improvising. Um, so. I think that's a that's a really great resource. Um, by the way, how crook got a lot of his start with Clark when he was young, hmm. you know. So I mean that's not that's not a coincidence. Right. So this sort of um, style of teaching. And you know, so you know, Clark. In addition to his educator, in addition to his playing, Clark was the nicest man I've ever met. And he would do anything for someone that he respected and liked. And he did so many great things for me throughout my life and my career. Um, He got me my first endorsement deal with an instrument company. Um, He just walked up to the owner of the company and goes, that guy can play. Get him a horn. You know, (laughs) I didn't ask for it. I mean, I didn't ask for it. He's like, you like it? And I was like, yeah, I like it. And, you know, and he goes, so he walked up and he literally just did that. And I was like, uh, and then they're like, after Clark left, they go, well, we can't say no to Clark Terry. So, um, that's, so I was very fortunate. I
0: was, I was listening to a podcast recently, um, music ed insights and and they had Bob Wash on director of jazz studies from, I think it was Iowa for a long time anyway. Ooh. And the, the quote he used, I'm like, that's a Clark Terry quote he was talking about, um, they said, so the biggest thing you're saying is imitate, assimilate, innovate, right? Yep. Clark always used to say that. Um, can you, can we discuss that a little bit? Cause those are a lot of, eights. sure. Yeah.
1: You know, that's, it's one of those things I will say Clark, I mean, that is, that, that, that is one of Clark's beacons, right? We think of Clark as being that that was his mantra, right? But I will say Clark, didn't really want people all the time copying. Mm-hmm. So it's it's. I'm going to go against the grain a little bit in this thing because who did Clark Terry copy? Name, me, name me a Armstrong? trumpet player. You could say Louis Armstrong, but you not could ca- say Roy well, a little bit. But he never sounded like Louis Armstrong or Roy Eldridge. What about so, when? They,
0: what about when he was really young and he was just learning? that language he 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 still didn't
1: didn't. he still didn't i mean he's he's a beautiful example of someone who didn't really fit in the stylistic box he you know he served in the service bands and so he moved to new york right after the service bands late i want to say mid to late 40s um so even when he was playing like he was in a trumpet section in the charlie barnett orchestra (laughs) this trumpet section was uh clark terry maynard ferguson Doc Severinsen and um, oh, Charlie Shavers so like crazy titanic trumpet section and, but he even then when he was formulating his early sounds and you listen to some of the early MRC recordings of him and the early like Rudy Van Gelder things you know he, he doesn't sound like he just sounds like Clark it's very interesting so his the mantra of imitate emulate or assimilate And innovate, Um, yes, that still is super important. I think the imitative stage when you're really young Mm -hmm. is important, but only on like a grammatical level, right? Right. We're talking like, um, you know, how now brown cow. That's how he used to try to teach you how to play plunger, right? Mm -hmm. You would would quote Shakespeare all the time. Um, You know, um, but it gets to the point where when you have a, like you have a developing student who it's not necessarily fitting in a box. That's when you have to almost go, well, do I need them to to like really play a Louis Armstrong solo? I think they should admi- they should acknowledge a Louis Armstrong s- solo, you know? They should, you know, respect that, but then instantly, you know, try to find their own their mm-hmm. own concept. Mm-hmm. You know, Ornette Coleman when he would like do sound checks, he would play Charlie Parker solos. So it's it is one of these things that we do come from tradition, and you know one of my favorite trumpet players can can imitate anybody, and you would not expect them. But Ambrose Akamusari can can literally play like Louis Armstrong if you wanted. He could play like Clark Terry. He could play like Clifford Brown. He knows the history. He respects the history. But you know he is genuinely you know a. a, a a total stylist in his own regard. So I have a little bit of trepidation when people always say, this is Clark Terry. And I'm, I'm almost certain that Clark didn't necessarily mean it in a, in a literal sense Hmm. where, you know, like in the emulative or assimilative stage where, you know, you have like, say you're playing a solo on, I don't want to be kissed. And you take Miles's transcription and you have it on your stand and you're trying to play it, you know, like that's cool and all, but Miles did it. So like, what are you trying to say as a creative musician? And I think some, some people in education, like with the younger students get scared of that. They're like, no, but we got to, we've got to make sure they do it this way. I was like, no, I think you could do both. The European standard of of teaching improvisation is so different than the Americanized standard, mm-hmm. the Berkeley, the New School, the Abersault sort of traditions, which are all valid. That's how I grew up. I learned that way. I'm thankful for it. But in some ways, I would have liked to just pick up my horn and play and not necessarily think, oh, well, this is a polydodecophonic 27 chord, <laughs> you know, Um You know, I was
0: like, so. So, are you saying that? I forgive me. That the European way is more of a by ear melodic
1: way. I would say that European. It's a mix because now they've changed too. So now they've changed a little bit in 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 terms of you know they're now getting more book savvy and things like this. Mm -hmm. But I would say like in. In, you know, you're talking 60s and 70s. It was different. It was very different, I think. Um, I don't know which which way is right. I think a combination is right, just like anything else.
0: One thing that's uh, that was cool about being with Clark is like being with somebody who was with everybody. You know, Absolutely. like, like the, the Miles Davis stories that he had, you know, oh, like just with somebody who, who was with all these people, you know, and, you know, I, I like Miles as much as everybody else and but, he, and he was someone who was always changing his sound and changing his approach. Whereas Clark, yeah. in my view, like he always sounded like Clark from 1940 yes. to 2010.
1: Yeah. And, 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 and if you want to dig real deep, you could say the exact same thing about Miles. It's just everything around him changed. Mm-hmm. You know, like Miles was still sounding like Miles when he was struggling playing with Bird in nineteen forty eight. Um, and he still sounds like Miles when he's playing, you know, tutu with electronic instruments and, and mm-hmm. playing over a click tracks. So um so the, 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 the original kernel stays the same and everything around it changes. You know, you could say that with a lot of great artists, you could say that with guy like Herbie Hancock, you know, a guy like, or someone like Stevie Wonder or, or even someone like Paul McCartney, like where, you know, it's still Paul McCartney, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's not Paul McCartney wings and it's not, and it's not, you know, you know, revolver album, you know, it's like, it is very different.
0: What what's great about what was great about Clark is, you know, in addition to being amazing as a as a musician, as a jazz musician, um, the educator, and we've talked a lot about that already. Um, but I have a story from Alan King, you know, Alan King here in Maine, right? Yes. One, one of the yes. finest one of the finest trumpet teachers, um, brass teachers, I should say. And he has a story. So I'm, I'm uh, plagiarizing the story, but um, there was a jazz all state that he was at and he was watching and the person conducting couldn't get the drummer to play three, four in swing. Like it was just not happening. He had been going at it for half an hour already. Couldn't do anything. And apparently Clark walked in the room, and he heard two notes, and he went up to the conductor. And Clark said, "You know, do do you mind if I try something?" So the guy's like, "Well, of course, go ahead. You're Clark Terry," and he walked over him in and he said, "This is how you play three four drums." He goes, "You park the car. He parks the car. She parks the car. You park the car. Can you play that?" So then the drummer goes, "It's like there, yeah, right." He just, um, he just did it super and, fast. And the conductor who I, I don't know who it was, but I'm sure was an expert in teaching goes, right. wow. You know, I just got a masterclass on how to fix that.
1: Yes, man. I mean, that's, and, and that's, and that is, you know, like you listen to Clark Terry's story. He didn't grow up in a musical educational context that we grew up in, you know, he, he, um, you know, like the, especially the early story of him getting his first instrument, right? Yeah, let's you know? tell that
0: story. Tell that story. I love okay. that story.
1: So the the best that I can, I hope I don't destroy it, but he was like, grew up in like a very impoverished area. His father had left, you know, early on in his life and like made, he wanted to play a brass instrument. He had this affinity for the sound and the power and the... And the and the you know, like that sort of energy that the you know, an instrument like the trumpet can produce, right? But he couldn't afford a trumpet. So he went to a junkyard and started putting all these like, Mm -hmm. you know, pots parts together like Pipes and like hoses, and he start He created something, and so it was a the it funnel was,
0: on the end. There was a funnel, as well, yeah, right? Yeah,
1: and he said it was such a horrendous sound. He would go home and he'd buzz into it. And maybe this is why he has such a great setup because he played such a terrible instrument to start, hmm. sort of like you know, the weighted bat syndrome in, yeah. in baseball. I don't know. Um, it was so bad and so horrendous that everybody in his neighborhood pitched in to buy him a. A, a trumpet because mm-hmm. they couldn't stand the sound of that instrument. So, that's amazing. I think that's just like an awesome story. So, uh, you know, I mean, that's that persistence and that sort of drive. You know, I don't know about you, but like I knew when I was probably 12 or 13 years old, I wanted to play trumpet like mm-hmm. as like a primary way to live, Mm -hmm. you know, and I still, I mean, I was up and I practiced a couple hours this morning before I went, went to work. So, I mean, the trumpet is still a very deep, I mean, it's obviously an integral part of my daily life and my business, of course, but you know, that's that inspiration. And, you know, it's the inspiration level, like Clark, you know, Clark was always the, you know, that phrase, you know, you could talk the talk, but you better walk the walk and man, he would talk but, man, he would run. He wouldn't even walk. Even when he was in a wheelchair and he couldn't walk. I mean, he we, – man, we think we would be in band and we would be thinking we were the swingingest cats out there and we were we were sad. And he would play like two notes. boo that And it's like, oh, shoot. I'm done. <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. And it was just like the beautiful thing of, of you know, how he taught, I think, like – it was a real fine line of being like good cop, bad cop all the time. I think too, you know, where it was like, he was, it was all out of love, but like, at least for me, you know, there were times when we were in the room privately where he was yell at me. He'd be like, yeah, that's sad. That's yeah. You can't do that. That's terrible. But like, you know, even in rehearsals, you know, he'd almost get to the point where you feel like a little uncomfortable, like, Oh Wow. And then he bring you right back up. So it, it, it's a, you know, and I think in today's world, we can't do that at all. You know, every, uh, I think a lot of people are more sensitive to criticism. You know, we're like, we're, we're, we're not open to like, you know, having someone dress us down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And which is sad because it's like, I mean, I don't need to have the old school way of people throwing batons at you or, or, or the like, you know, like yep. storming off or things like that. No whiplash thing. <laughs> Thank goodness I have never seen that movie. But, um, you know, uh, but there is, there is that line, you know, on how to read students. And Clark, Clark could read people really well. He could read like the real sensitive people in the band. Mm -hmm. and but always make them feel better which i think is really cool now it could it's not necessarily the you know the drummer the lead trumpet player or the you know first tenor player you know the stars of the band he Mm -hmm. was like you know sometimes it's the third trombonist that he would like grab and raise up Mm -hmm. and and it was like it's super hip you know team you know super hip A couple
0: stories from Clark Terry's uh, near the end of his life, at least personal stories. I remember when he had cancer, right? And he he missed some time when I was in school. So he came back to this concert and, you know, huge applause and he had lost hair and, you know, but he and he's in a wheelchair and they wheel him out. And the first thing he says, he takes the microphone and he says, man, I got to tell you, the golden years, they suck.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yeah, that was his like that was his intro line for the last maybe 10 or 15 years of his life. Yep. You know. The, the the amazing Okay, I'll tell you a story. We went on his 94th birthday. A lot of, you know, people that played in his band in the 70s or played in his small group later on or like people like myself who were, you know, he was a mentor to us. We all flew down to his house in Pine Bluff and we had a big band for him, you know, and he was, you know, I mean, he passed away two months later, I think. And so he was very, very, very frail, very ill. He had no, you know, like it was, it was very hard. I'll say Mm -hmm. that to see him that way. Um, you know, and he was sleeping most of the day. So most of it was just for us, Mm -hmm. right? We were all there, you know, you know, reconnecting, having fun, playing the music and doing, and you know, he would come out, they would wheel him out into his living room and he would, you know, listen, the, the, the educator of was still in him because I remember we were playing one song and he like waves his arms and we're all like, what? And he goes, you all are playing that right. It's And he started singing (laughs) and we're all like, here's a guy who's, you know, he's, he's on heaven's door. Right. Um, can barely, barely breathe, who just like literally, you know, perked up like incredibly. But it was that thing about, you know, like, this is is my passion, you know, and I don't know if he ever thought, like, you know, when he was 30 years old, for instance, you know, I'm sure he never thought he was going to be an educator Mm -hmm. like that. Um, you know, he was recording, he was doing six jingles a day. He was playing with Ellington's band. I mean, like, you know, like you're not thinking, you know, like one day I'm going to, you know, get all these doctorates from all these universities and influence, gosh, I don't even tens of thousands of people, you know, um, that's power. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about his legacy is that, you know, all of his children and you're one of Clark's children too, Mm -hmm you know, we have this ability to connect a little bit differently than if we didn't have that opportunity working with him. So that's the gift that he gave us, which is just so, so, so precious.
0: And I, um, I was, I was told that he was the first one on the Ellington band and the Basie band. Is that true?
1: He's, yeah. He was the first person who did both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's only been a few like uh Louis Belson, um, uh, Quentin Jackson, maybe like there, there haven't been many, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so that's, yeah, Um, it's pretty amazing.
0: And then he was also the, I think that was the first black musician on the payroll at NBC or the first black person.
1: He was the Jackie Robinson of the studio orchestra world. Um, and he told me that he didn't miss a note in the orchestra, that studio orchestra for nine years. Nine years. And so I actually had the opportunity to study with someone who lived out in Massachusetts, who lived in um, Swampscott. Oh, no, no, Nahant. Sorry. That is an island in, um, uh, outside of Boston, who was in the studio orchestra playing trumpet with, with Clark. And so I asked him that. I asked Bob. His name was Bob McCoy. Um, and I asked him, I was like, was Clark, was he serious about that? And and Bob goes, Clark didn't miss a single note ever. I did not hear it. He goes, he was the most perfect musician in that group. And, you know, he said because he was black, he had, pe- people said, oh, you're not going to be able to, to read. Mm. You know, you're going to keep screwing up. We're going to have to take all these things. You know, that the classic, you know, deep racist impression of what a musician is, you know, yeah. like, and he did just the opposite. You know, and he but he had to, he said, I had to be perfect. I had to be perfect because otherwise it was gonna give them a scapegoat to, to fire me. Mm-hmm. So it's and intense. You,
0: and and you tell a story about going to his house when he was later on in his years, and you walk in and mm-hmm. he's back there playing Clark Study Number Two or, or something
1: like yeah. that. So yeah, this is and this is like I mean, the reason why I I'm genuinely excited and and you know, you know, like just you know, so energized to practice every day because uh, it was probably I want to say '98, '99. So, so he was, you know, so let's see, he was born in 1920, right? So, what 79, 80 years old, right? <clears throat> and he had just had his first major laser, laser eye surgery, and he calls me, and he's like, hey man, you want to come hang out. Gwen's out of town and I could use someone to help. And I was like, yeah, sh- you were asking me to go hang out with you. Sure. So I got in my car and I drove from Boston to Long Island. Um, and I go, I open up the door and, you know, and I'm a Clark freak. I have so many recordings of him. You know, I've studied his music. I transcribed his solos, you know, like he's <coughs> a huge part of my life. And, and I'm like listening and I hear this sermon mute and I'm like, oh, that doesn't really sound like any of those recordings. Oh, maybe this is a new import. I don't know. So I go into the <laughs> kitchen and there's Clark in his bathrobe. He's got a toothpick hanging out of his side. He always did that. <laughs> he played with a toothpick hanging out, which means his embouchure center is so strong and so, so well-formed. But I don't recommend anybody putting a toothpick in their mouth and playing trumpet. Okay, but I digress. Um, so he's playing. He's not supposed to be playing because he had just had laser surgery. Uh, but I said to him, I was like, Clark, man, what are you doing practicing? I mean, it's like you've played with everybody. You've, and I start naming the names, you know, because it's out of reverence, you know, like you play with Ella, you play with Dizzy, you play with, you know, you know, all these people. It's like, why are you practicing? And he looks at me and he's dead serious. He goes, because I'm still learning. And I'm like, crap. You know, <laughs> here I am the, you know, 25 year old cocky, you know, like hot shot trumpet player. Right. And I'm like, this guy, who's was 80 years old is telling me this. I'm like, Oh, and I got, I got depressed and he goes, let's practice together. And that's all we did the whole weekend. We ate barbecue and we practiced. So, that's awesome. and we listen. he'd turn on videos of, of him playing. He's like, have you ever seen this video? This is a good one. And, you know, you know, pull out the video of his big, bad, band when they were in sweden or take out a combo with him and and you know dizzy and i'm like oh, holy cow you know like so it was pretty cool but yeah
0: there's a there's a, a full concert recording on youtube of him and oscar peterson trio um yes. in what country is that in i forget it's,
1: i think it's either norway or sweden um it was a 1965 or 1966 it's and so is, good. they they are not holding any bars. You know, they're they're throwing down Clark sounds absolutely magnificent on that. And the whole group, of course. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. yeah.
0: So let's uh let's conclude with a little bit of jazz improvisation talk. Sure. Um, I remember taken a lesson from you a long time ago and you started talking to me about chromatic approach tones and you're you're it was the first time i had heard it so i'm sure there are some band directors or people listening who have not heard about it um so if people are understanding how to play over chord changes in a basic way but how do you get like some chromaticism into your solo right and there's there's a basic way to start and then lots of things you can do on top of it to build that so let's just go on that what is a chromatic approach tone and how do you how do you use it
1: yeah, so I think, I think what happens is, especially the people that are in, like I said, that Amersault sort of world where are the white notes the right notes or the black notes the right notes, you know, when, when you would see the scale chart and, and they'd be separated, you know, like, so sometimes we feel like, you know, we're locked in by chord tones. A lot of times when I hear younger ensembles, uh, especially improvisers play; they're they're holding on to those chord tones with for dear like like dear life, like it's their life preserver, mm-hmm. and they're 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 not going to drown. Um, but one of the first things of about freedom of of an improviser is the ability to just sort of weave in and out of the right note and the wrong note, because mm-hmm. you know what did Miles Davis say? He didn't say there were no wrong notes. He said, "Do not fear mistakes because there are none." You know. And that's a classic Miles thing. He would screw up and he'd play the same note four times, and then eventually people started playing the melody that way because they were like, well, that's the way Miles played it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many tunes you call on jam sessions that you have to say, are we playing the right changes or are we playing the Miles changes? <laughs> Which is like that's power too, by the way. Right, right, right. Um, so, so so if you think about just a basic arpeggio, bo- right um if you just did that like soloing that way it'd be kind of lame it can be kind of boring so a lot of people talk about like adding stuff so it's basically like you have you know the chord tones are your sandwich bread right Mm -hmm. and the the approaches are all the unbelievably good condiments you can add to whatever sandwich you you are making um the simplest way of doing this is just taking a single chromatic chromatic note so say you're on the five, right? Uh, so instead of doing that, you go, right? That in itself sounds like a little phrase, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of fun, you know? Like you could actually solo on that. and Or if you did it from the other way, you know, like, okay, cool. I can do that way. Um, through doing these exercises because there's okay we'll get into some factorials here so we have 12 keys right yeah we have 12 basic chord types major minor diminished sus augmented blah 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 we have four chord tones and then if you're utilizing chromaticism there's 12 basic ways you can get to a note, either via combinations of single and double chromatic. Mm-hmm. So like a double chromatic would be if I was going to that G, for instance. I'm sorry, I'm singing an F concert mm-hmm. because I'm a trumpet player. But if I'm going to that G, a double chromatic would be do, do be dee da de, 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 de. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, or you can go boo do 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 Right. Right. Uh, by the way, a minor pent- pentatonic scale is basically a minor arpeggio with chromatic notes yep. in it. So, um, But, you know, if we listen to Charlie Parker, we listen to Charlie Parker, who's like, and Charlie Parker, there is, you know, in, like I said earlier about the whole imitate, emulate, assimilate, innovate thing. I was like, there's one person that we should really, you know, emulate, and it is Charlie Parker, You know, because Charlie Parker is the bridge towards a modern improvised language. Mm. Um, So, but if you take Charlie Parker's solos on rhythm changes, almost, you can count how many times in the Charlie Parker Omni book, he ends the phrase on an eight bar of the A section on uh, rhythm changes with, well, what is that? That's a single chromatic note from above and a double chromatic from below to the third of a chord. Mm-hmm. So what if you just practice that? You know, like there's these little tiny kernels of information that... You know, you could say, well, I transcribed it from Bird, but what did you transcribe? Like, that's another thing that we don't necessarily do. We'll learn all these solos, but we're never really analyzing Mm -hmm. what makes that solo so great. And this is like something that you see, like you see it 50, 60 times in the soul. And you're like, well, there's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that he did that because it's connective tissue. So chromatic approaches are like having cartilage. You know, it allows you to do this. If you didn't have cartilage, that would be very challenging. So if you just go, that's going to be a really boring solo. But if you went, oh, that sounds kind of cool. It's like, oh my gosh, it's not rocket surgery. You know, it really isn't. But we have to make exercises, I think to make it applicable so um, for anybody who is out there there is a i do a youtube video on this i have um on my channel which is mostly just me demonstrating horns that are in the shop i do have i think 68 or 69 free little mini lessons and one of them uh dives into this topic and um i can send you the link on email if you if you don't know it um and and it's super great because it's like it's the gap that we, what I hear in musicians who don't know how to play bebop and I'll play with guys in Kansas City. <clears throat> now Kansas City is a swing town, you know. You would think it's a bebop town because Charlie Parker's from here, but Count Basie was, you know, got his Count Basie's from New Jersey, but he got his professional start here in Kansas City, really. Um <clears throat> and uh it's it's I can tell the people that know what I'm talking about, like with this stuff, and I can tell the people that haven't done it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like, I, I have a hard time listening to those musicians who haven't done it. But if you listen to Chris Potter, or if you listen to, you know, like Orrin Evans or somebody like, you know, like you could take even more avant-garde players, you know, or players outside, like you listen to John Mayer, John Mayer knows chromaticism. And like literally, it's like, yeah, mm. you know it's maybe not his thing, <coughs> but he knows it, hmm. so you know, anyways, so yeah the, yeah the way know.
0: the way you had me do it and and i oh. I do with my students too sometimes, is I will you had me play, I think you just had me play a half step below the root on beat four, yep. right, so four yeah. one, four, one, four, one, and then yes. once I could do that, then you did a half step above four, one, four, one, or, or yes. whatever. And then you had me to go half step above, half step below, four and one, four and one. Yep. That's like a really yep. base, basic way to do it. Um, and then once I could do that, then you said, okay, let's do two, right? Three and four and one. Um, yes. and, and then once I could do that, then um, we, okay, now instead of aiming for the root, let's aim for the third. And then instead of aiming Wait. for the third, let's aim for the fifth.
1: Because most improvisers who are learning and starting out are reactionary players. In other words, they see the chord, they hear the chord, and then they react to said sound or said concept, you know, mode, scale in their mind Mm -hmm. versus like Charlie Parker. Now, Charlie Parker, he was always an anticipatory player. In other words, when he was like in the height of his prowess in bebop era, remember, his styling was relatively new. He would screw up rhythm sections all the time because he would be going, and he'd be like, he'd see the two, five, one, or whatever, and he'd be like, you know, he'd be inferring that sound Mm -hmm. six beats before it actually happened. So all of a sudden, the rhythm section would go, oh, no, he's here. You know, like, and they go, oh, it would, you know, it would destroy things. But You know, I think it's a great thing. Yeah, what you're talking about, like four one or end of four one, is super valuable having your students like for just being so confident enough to be like, I'm providing you this sound, I'm providing you this shape. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it happens. So it's I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, it doesn't have to be better, but it doesn't have to be any of that stuff. I mean that all comes in time, and the speed comes with drill and repetition. You know, mm-hmm. I mean that's you know like you want to play fast. Well, you know you're gonna have to practice slow for a long time, but you also have to then practice fast. You know, I get I get I get irked when people say, "Well, if you want to play fast, you have just have to practice slow." That's not true. You actually have to play fast too. You can't just expect to like instantly, Oh, I played this, you know, quarter note equals 60. Now I should be able to play a quarter note equals two eighty. That makes so much sense. <laughs> so, <clears throat> you know, you, you mentioned Anyways.
0: earlier your, um, uh, as we, as we wrap this up, I think you and I could go all day, but I don't oh, think, man, I I'm, don't, I don't, I
1: don't, uh, <laughs> I don't think the listeners want to hear that though.
0: Um, so Bruce Brown, you said was the name of your middle school band director. Yes. What was so inspirational about him? You said he's a trumpet player. Yes. So, so I'm, I'm trying and, to connect. And, I'm trying to connect that to what what you know kids see as
1: inspiration in their band directors, right? So. Yes. So the I'll I'll tell you <clears throat> my first time I ever saw Bruce. He was my sisters. I have two older sisters, and they were doing a concert, and he played a trumpet solo. He had a shiny silver trumpet. So I was like, Woo! you know, I I didn't even play trumpet at this time. <clears throat> and I thought it was awesome. The thing that Bruce has, and he still has, um, one, he's super positive. He's so happy to be in the moment. So I think, you know, he's not taking any of his time for granted. Um, he's deeply engaged with you as a person. I remember that so well like in rehearsals, you know, like he would, you know, you know, you've, there might have been 50 of us in the room but you only felt like there was one person. Yeah. Like um
0: and I will you know, say like, be- before you finish, I will say yeah. you got you got that from him. Because oh, you, you you act that way too. You make you, anybody feel like they're the only one in the room even if there's a lot of people around. Oh,
1: wow. That's really, yeah. it's because I'm scared of large crowds and that's not, uh, I'm not joking. So, um, yeah, I'm very intimidated in large social situations. Horn is a little bit of comfort, but otherwise yeah. I'm very awkward. Um, anywho, um, and then, then it's like he was also one of these people that I remember <coughs> being <coughs> so, so like walk the walk, talk the talk. And that I, I, I say that all the time, but it was like, man, he would pick up his horn and play. And it was just like, it was like the most glorious thing. And he, after he got done and he could be playing guitar or he could be playing, you know, drums or he could be playing bass or, or playing the trumpet. And he had this zest and zeal and put this beam of light, this positivity you know, he's not showing off. He's inspiring. And it was like, you know, so we would do these like, you know, improv camps at his house you know nowadays with you know like modern world you couldn't do that but Mm -hmm. you know he would you know we would sit outside and in the summer he would turn on the boom box we'd play songs and everybody would trade you know choruses and eights and stuff it was super fun and then we'd take a break and we'd shoot baskets you know and eat swiss miss you know like uh you know it was like it was just like it's one of those moments when you're a kid that was like that moment, like another mm-hmm. one of those deep, ingraining, positive moments where I was like, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. I want to do that. And I think, I think that's the, the joy. Maybe I was just oblivious to how hard that eventually the professional life would become. Mm-hmm. Um, the grind, you know. Uh, but he never seemed like, and man, Kyle, he would be going, like we grew up in a district, so he would have to go to three schools a day, you know? Right. He'd drive from Corinna, then to Heartland, which is a 25-minute drive, and then drive to Aetna, which is like an hour drive from there, all in one day, and then mm. go and then teach lessons at night. I mean, it was like he had this, this energy and this stamina that there's no way I could do what he's could do. And so, um, you know, that's that inspiration that, that we get. And, and, you know, all three of my instructors, I was so fortunate that all three of them had that passion and that po. and they're all positive. You know, Jack Clifford would break everybody into jokes and make people laugh and make people feel comfortable. Mm. You know, you gotta make especially, you know, like say middle school, such a, such an impressionable age and such, such a delicate age for everybody. I mean, everybody's sensitive when they're in middle school, you're still trying to feel, you know, like out who you are, like in a, in a very like elemental like phase. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those two people in particular had this just uncanny ability to make, you feel comfortable, even if you were doing something incredibly awkward and and, and highly embarrassing potentially, mm-hmm. like taking an improvised solo in your jazz band when sure. you don't know what you're doing. That is like, that is that's scary. Mm-hmm. That's literally scary. You know, and they said, don't worry, we've got you. You know, you might fall down, you might fall all the time, and we got you. And I think... I think that, you know, oh, that's so inspirational because it's like, you know, there are moments in every part of your day that you might have like one moment to hit that one particular, you know, inspirational section for, you know, for that young artist, yeah. you know, and that might change their life. That might be like, wow, you know, I think about all those directors and, and there's some, I mean, you know, like I'm in the business world now and I feel like sometimes i'm i'm sad because i don't get to have that experience mm-hmm. as much anymore um you know that sort of like the light bulb turning on the the creative energy like this i get it sort of moment mm-hmm. oh that is that's power that's joy and power and i think i mean as as a former educator um you know who occasionally dabbles still um i think that's why that's what it's all about. You know, that is what it's all about for me at least.
0: Well, if, if you're missing that, that thrill, Anytime you want to hop a plane up to Westbrook, you're welcome to share the podium with me.
1: I would love that, and I will. (laughs) I mean, you know, you know, I've got a lot of miles to spend, so there a trip to Maine is in my future. I just don't know exactly when, but hopefully it's soon. So I know I'm. I'm, I know the summer I'll be in Europe again with the UNH Jazz Band as their guest artist, just like Clark used to do. And that kind of freaks me out. Like last year, I I got to headline the Clark Festival. Yeah, and that that was was like one of the it was one of the most freaky moments in my life because I'm like, this is where I met Clark. I met Clark in 1992 at that festival, you know, and now I'm that person. And I'm like, this is, I mean, this is wrong. You know, this is, <laughs> I don't belong, I don't belong on that stage. Um, but it was, it was, it was an incredible thrill, you know. I think so, Clark, would very disagree fortunate.
0: With, Clark would disagree with you.
1: Well, I don't yeah. know. I hope the 20 I slipped him as a bribe might have helped.
0: We sincerely appreciate you taking your valuable time and listening to The Growing Band Director podcast. Your students are very lucky to have a band director like you. If you have any suggestions for episode topics or think you have an area of expertise to share on a show with us, please reach out. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your band director friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our YouTube channel, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to The Growing Band Director. See you next week.